Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from Aptalis Pharma, Inc., Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Today's program is a companion piece to our E-Cystic Fibrosis Review newsletter topic, Adherence to Chronic Inhaled Therapies. Our guest is that issue's author, Dr. Kristen Reichert from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. This activity has been developed for pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. The accreditation and credit designation statements can be found at the end of this podcast. For additional information about accreditation, Hopkins policies and expiration dates, and to take the post-test to receive credit online, please go to our website newsletter archive www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org and click on the Volume 4, Issue 2 podcast link. Learning objectives for this program are that after participating in this activity, the participant will demonstrate the ability to identify best practices for determining which patients are non-adherent, identify risk factors for non-adherence, and describe various counseling strategies to address non-adherence. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of Cystic Fibrosis Review. On the phone, we have with us Dr. Kristen A. Reichert, Associate Professor and Co-Director of the Johns Hopkins Adherence Research Center at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Dr. Reichert has disclosed that she has served as a consultant for Gilead Sciences, Inc. and Novartis, Inc., and she's indicated that there will be no reference to unapproved or unlabeled use of drugs or products in her presentation today. Dr. Reichert, welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Hi, Bob. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. In your newsletter issue, Dr. Riker, you reviewed some of the recent data investigating the barriers to adherence to chronic cystic fibrosis medications, the challenges clinicians face in assessing patient adherence, and best practices for developing adherence interventions. What I'd like to do today is see how that data can be applied in practice. Uh, so start us out, if you would, doctor, by describing a patient for us. Our first patient is a 30-year-old male with his second pulmonary exacerbation in the past year after having only three previous exacerbations in his lifetime, all when he was a teenager or in college. His medication regimen includes pancreatic enzymes, azithromycin, Dornase alpha, and inhaled tobramycin. Astrinum lysine was added about 10 months ago. He is a successful salesperson who was just promoted to a position with good health benefits. He regularly attends clinic appointments and is knowledgeable about CF and his regimen. While he admits it's challenging to follow his regimen, he finds keeping a strict routine helpful. Now, the patient you described, he goes to the clinic, he's knowledgeable about his disease, until recently he's had very few exacerbations. This guy seems pretty together. Why would you consider non-adherence as a risk factor for the increase in his exacerbations? Well, there are actually several red flags that I see. The first is that his regimen became more complex a few months ago, and when there's more complexity, there's more burden and there's a change in your routine. He's also recently had a change in his job, which also changes routines and expectations at work. So his routines might be affected, and that is commonly identified as a barrier. We also know that non-adherence is a significant predictor of the need for IV antibiotics for a pulmonary exacerbation. So given that he's had several exacerbations in the past year, and that isn't his norm, it should be put on the list of rule-outs. It might not be the cause, but it could be contributing. And finally, he says it's challenging to follow the routine, and that really opens the door up for a conversation about adherence, because we know when someone says they're having a hard time, there usually is a significant barrier that needs to be worked on. As you just said, his regimen became more complex, and what you're referring to is the addition of the azeotram lysine. 
How much of an effect would you expect that to have on his adherence? So anytime you add a new medication, it changes the regimen and the burden of it. Streamlycine, well, it's every other month. It is also a medication that has to be done three times a day, and that can be challenging to integrate into one's routine. So, for example, this patient is a salesperson, and if he has to make sales calls in the middle of the day, he might not be able to get that middle dose in. Uh, All right, so assessing his level of adherence, what should the care team do? Well, first of all, it's very tempting to assume that this patient is highly adherent because he has good health benefits and money shouldn't be an issue. He's well-educated, he's organized and personable, which is a characteristic of a salesperson, and he keeps his clinic appointments and is very knowledgeable about CF. The challenge is that just because you have all these positive things doesn't mean you're assured that someone is adherent. So we cannot assume that adherence is good, and in fact, clinician impression is usually no better than chance. As clinicians, we're not very good at figuring out which person is taking their medications and which ones aren't. My goal as a psychologist is to always try and get an objective measure. So I like to use either pharmacy records that we can calculate an estimate of adherence, or preferably using electronic monitors to get a date and time stamp of when people are using and perhaps if they're using it correctly. And some parts of Europe are now using electronic monitors to follow nebulizer adherence. Unfortunately, those aren't available in the United States. Uh, Since pharmacy records and electronic monitoring are not available in the U.S., as you just noted, what can the care team do to improve the accuracy of either patient self-reporting or clinician assessment for adherence? instance, since the patient opens the door to the fact that adherence is challenging, there's a great opportunity to discuss it with them. If a patient happens to be 100% adamant that they do all their medications and never miss, it's hard to have that conversation. And unfortunately, when someone says they're doing everything, when you compare it to objective data, they may be doing nothing to everything. And so it really is not a useful piece of information. But in this instance, our patient did say they're having a challenge. So we'd want to follow that up with an open-ended question that's non-judgmental. So we don't want them to make it feel like if they admit non-adherence, they're going to be punished for that. And we need to normalize non-adherence because we know everybody has struggles following a very complex regimen. All these things will elicit a more accurate reporting. And as long as some non-adherence is acknowledged, we can go to the next step of identifying barriers. A key point, though, is when someone says, for example, I take half my meds, they're probably taking half or less. No one is ever going to say they do less of a good thing. So no one says they exercise less than they do. No one says they floss their teeth less than they do. We always give ourselves maximal credit for positive health behaviors. So we need to acknowledge that if someone says I do half, it's probably half or less. But clinically, when we're trying to counsel them around barriers, it doesn't really matter the exact amount, just that there's an openness to discussing the barriers. Talking specifically about this patient, what barriers would you anticipate and how would you address them? So in this patient, there's some pretty obvious barriers of change in routine, either the the change in the regimen that happened a few months ago or the change in job requirements, so possibly more responsibilities of work. So all those things are known barriers of sticking to a treatment plan. So what I would do is I'd have him go through his daily routine. What do you do in the morning, et cetera? And we might find out that he used to exercise after work, but now he's at work so late or traveling that he can't exercise, and that used to be his form of airway clearance, and now he doesn't do that, and because he's feeling so poorly, he's not getting to the gym. He might also believe that regimen is an all or nothing, so we often train our patients that they should do their medications and their airway clearance in a particular order, and while that's very important, it also sometimes sets up the expectation that if you can't do one part of that routine, you should do none of it. So we need to sort of troubleshoot with him 
that if he's short on time, what's the most important thing to fit in? So if you can't do it all, what should we try and get done? But before we even get into that problem solving, we need to address whether there's any changes in his health beliefs. And health beliefs really affect what we anticipate we're going to do and whether it's important to do it. So, for example, we often hear that once patients get into their 30s, they start thinking about their own mortality because they know the median lifespan is about 37. And some people misunderstand that statistic and think that they're going to die by the time they're 37. So fatalism sets in, and that's the idea that there's nothing they can do. The outcome's sort of predetermined. And so for him to have a sudden increase in exacerbations when he's turned 30, he might see it as the beginning of the end. And so what's the point of sticking to my treatments? Conversely, he might not think these medications are working for him anymore. And so we need to help provide him evidence for that. So we want to make sure we understand the beliefs before we jump into the problem solving. But once we decide that beliefs are an issue, we problem solve how to create a new routine. So what is the routine we can do now? Sometimes with certain people who work different shifts, we have to shift their morning dose to later in the day and their evening dose even later. So making sure that we can get that all fit in. And more importantly, how to adapt if they run out of time. If it's not possible to do it, what, what's the next best thing to get done? Dr. Reichert, thank you for that case and discussion. Let me ask you to bring us another patient now, if you would, please. Our second patient is a 14-year-old girl. Today, her FEV1% predicted was 64%, and her BMI percentile was 20. This is down from one year ago when they were 73% predicted and 35. Her parents divorced about two years ago, but both do attend clinic visits without signs of overt conflict, although sometimes you feel there's some tension in the room. The mother reports that the patient has become the typical teenager, staying in her room, sleeping most of the day, and not interested in activities that she used to love. The patient spends most of the visit on her smartphone. The family has been very open in the past few years about their troubles getting treatment done because they're busy or forget. You review with them why it's important to do each aspect of the regimen, suggest several reminder strategies, including apps for the smartphone, and make sure that there are no financial barriers to obtaining the medication. However, you've given this speech so many times, you're sure the family could recite it verbatim. While the family says that they know adherence is important and that they'll try harder, you're not really optimistic that anything will change. This is a very complicated and challenging case. Where do you start with this patient? There is a lot going on with this family, but unfortunately, it's a typical scenario. Most families have more than one barrier to adherence and a lot going on. It's also typical that the care team feels very ineffective when it comes to adherence counseling. So this is a very, very typical case. With this case, I would start with a depression assessment. I'm actually very concerned about this patient because even though teenagers do sleep more and change their interest in activities, this patient is reported sleeping most of the day and not interested in any activity she used to love. So I am highly concerned that she might be depressed. And we care about depression because depression in and of itself is a bad thing to be. That affects your quality of life and your mental health. But it also doubles the likelihood that someone will be non-adherent. So that could be a contributing factor to her non-adherence. As far as treating the depression if she turns out to be depressed, I would recommend a counseling referral, either alone or in combination with an antidepressant, because there's so many other factors going on that are quite complex. There may or may not be some family conflict and challenges in adjusting to her parents' divorce. The non-adherence has been long-term now, so that what's been able to be done in the clinic hasn't been enough to get them over that hump. You mentioned giving the family the adherence speech about the importance of medication adherence, etc., so often that they could probably recite it back to you verbatim. Now, now, most clinicians, we can assume, have their own version of this speech, and I think we can also assume that in most cases it's pretty comprehensive. 
My question to you is, why isn't the speech working? Well, the content is good, but it doesn't work because it's not tailored to the family-specific barriers. And by now, they've heard it so many times, they've just tuned out the clinician. So in this instance, they talk a lot about forgetting. And forgetting is a really easy answer. But unless there's cognitive deficits or dementia, it's usually just the tip of the iceberg and requires a lot of follow-up questions. So they don't have memory problems. So just recommending a reminder system on your phone is not going to solve the problem. So in this case, I would ask them about their typical morning, their typical evening. And on days they forget, what else is going on? And in this case, I could imagine that things that might be disclosed might be that they don't have the equipment, so the vest or their medications and the nebulizer, they don't have a second one for dad's house. So if the daughter is now going to the father's home for joint custody straight from school, she's not carrying those things to school. That would be embarrassing and cumbersome. So the equipment not being at the second home might be a challenge. You know, parent-child conflict, that always affects the extent to which people can follow the regimen. They just don't want to have another battle. And as we talked about before, depression coming up. So if she's definitely sleeping more, there's certainly less time to be following a treatment regimen. So addressing these barriers requires more than an app and a little bit of knowledge of why it's important. It really involves some in-depth counseling and understanding. And again, that might require a referral out because it's just too much to do in a clinic visit. You're right, of course, that in some cases, referral to outside counseling may be needed, uh, but that brings in a lot of variables that go beyond the scope of today's discussion. So rather than get into that, I'd like to keep the focus on what the care team can do. And I want to ask you about education. What doesn't the family understand about how important it is to keep up with all the treatments, and what can the care team do about it? What we know from many illnesses, and CF included, is that knowledge is necessary but not sufficient to be adherent. So our care teams need to keep providing that information and providing that education, but they might need to do some more. When we have interventions, we rarely find that we can increase people's knowledge, but that doesn't always translate into a change in behavior. What we know is that interventions that are most effective in changing behavior are multi-component. So they include providing education, but also target other barriers, such as problem-solving, motivational interviewing to try and get people's intrinsic, so their internal reasons for why they want to be adherent because it's consistent with their other life goals, enhancing parenting skills because sometimes the issue is just general parenting skills could be improved to then support adherence, and offering social support to the patient and to the family. And we'll return with Dr. Kristen Reichert in just a moment. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of eCystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. 
Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Kristen Reichert, co-director of the Johns Hopkins Adherence Research Center, and our topic is adherence to chronic inhaled therapies. We've been discussing how the new information Dr. Reichert presented in her newsletter issue can be applied in clinical practice. Uh, So if you would, doctor, bring us another patient, please. Our final patient is an 18-year-old male who recently graduated from high school and will be moving to college about three hours from home in approximately two months. His FEV1% predicted was 80% and BMI percentile was 44 three months ago. One year ago, they were 85% predicted and 51 he averages about one pulmonary exacerbation a year. He's prescribed pulmonary medications that include Dornase Alpha, Azithromycin, and Inhaled Tobermycin. The team's perception at a preclinic meeting is that his adherence is pretty good. And today, a care team member suggested adding hypertonic saline to the regimen. Uh, a couple of questions I want to ask you about this case, doctor. You said the team's perception is that his adherence is pretty good. Well, that raised a red flag for me based on things you've said earlier today and the research that was described in your newsletter issue. So my first question is, how much value would you place in the team's perception of his adherence? As we've already discussed in the first case, it's pretty hazardous to use clinician-estimated adherence because it's not always accurate. And to just expand upon that a little more, in the Daniels paper, as discussed in the newsletter, they showed some fascinating data that showed a huge scatter plot that none of the care team providers, and they looked at every single one, physicians, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nurses, None of them were accurate in identifying specific patients, whether they were adherent or non-adherent. And this is a really big concern because if you think someone is adherent and they're actually not, you may inadvertently be reinforcing their non-adherence. So, for example, if you say, Joe, you've done a great job sticking to your regimen, it's really helping you out because they've been fairly healthy and he's doing nothing, he's going to continue to do nothing and say, maybe this medication just isn't important for me. Conversely, if you have someone who's doing their really best to try and get you 90% adherence, close to 100 some weeks, and you perceive them as being non-adherent, perhaps because they're having some health problems, and you say, you know, you really have to do a better job. You really, you have to get more of these medicines and it's really important for your health. And they know they're doing just about everything possible. They are also going to become less adherent because, again, the perception will be, this must not make a difference to my health. So it is very important not to make assumptions, but to try and get some objective data and and patient perception of what's going on. I also want to ask you about his lifestyle change. I think this is something all clinicians have seen, that one of the biggest challenges to continued adherence is when a patient undergoes a major change in their life. Now, this patient is getting ready to go away to college. How would you expect that change is going to impact his adherence? College has a huge impact on everyone's lifestyle, but particularly when you have a chronic illness. There's new routines, there's new schedules, you're not on the same schedule every day. 
So there's a irregularity in your academic life, but also your social life. There's a lot more socializing with peers. Sometimes that translates into late nights of drinking. And as one patient once told me, after I come in from drinking, I don't plan to brush my teeth, no less do my medications. There's also change in social support. So when you move away from home, you don't have your parents there to help scaffold you and support you in it, even if they're just reminding you or making sure you don't run out of medications. Parents tend to be very involved in patients' daily care, and so that gets removed. So even if mom's texting and phoning, it's still removed enough that it doesn't have the impact it has at home. And on top of that, you have disclosure of your diagnosis. Because you're coughing all the time, you don't always want people to know that you have an illness. You want to be treated as the person you are, not a person with an illness. And when you're at home, people have just known your whole life that you have CF. But when you get to college, it's an opportunity to not be the person with CF. And so sometimes you don't tell people your diagnosis. And if you're not telling them you have CF, you're certainly not going to want to take your enzymes in front of them when you're having a meal together. You're not going to want to do your treatments in front of them. And what we often recommend as a care team is, well, it's a pretty simple fix. Just get the single don't have a roommate. And again, as another patient told me, like who wants to be the dork with the single with all this noise and coughing coming from out of the room? So they want a normal college life and that means roommates. But sometimes it's embarrassing to do therapies in front of roommates. Or if you're fine doing it in front of your roommate, you don't necessarily want to do it in front of your roommate's friend. And also the equipment makes noise. And so you don't want to interrupt your roommate and disrupt them plus the cleaning of the equipment, et cetera, there's just a lot of logistical issues with dorm life. And finally, some patients perceive this as this opportunity to take a break from CF, that they've been living with this for so long, they just want a few years where they're just themselves. They're not themselves as a person with CF. And so the best way to do this is to just not do your therapies because then you're not reminded that you have CF. So going to college might not be the best time to start a new medication, but it's really an optimal time to try and anticipate with them these barriers and how they're going to address them moving forward because it's very hard for them to envision this happening, but we see it time and time again through our experience with more people. As you just said, going to college may not be the best time to start a new medication, Uh, but at the same time, the team has suggested adding hypertonic saline. What can the team do to encourage good adherence when a patient starts a new medication? Whenever starting a new medication, it's really important to provide some good education mixed with what I'll call marketing strategies. The education has to tell the patient what the medication name is, what it's going to do, how it works, and how they should take it correctly. But we also need to set outcome expectations. And what I mean by that is what should happen right away when they take their medications and what should they expect to happen long term. Because if they're not going to feel any immediate difference, we need to let them know that because many people will stop taking their medications if they don't feel different. With hypertonic saline, it's quite different. You actually cough a lot with it. And this is where the marketing comes in, in that we want to set up the expectation that this coughing is good coughing, not your sick coughing. You want people to think they're coughing because they're getting the mucus out, and getting the mucus out is going to help prevent infections and help prolong their life. People who have that mindset are very faithful to taking their saline, whereas those who are like, the coughing makes me feel awful and miserable and sick, I hate it, they are much less likely to be taking their saline. And we already know that adherence to hypertonic saline is usually about 15 to 20% lower than their other medications, and it's mostly because of this coughing issue. So to address that right up front and set proper expectations that we want them to cough and that the coughing is good is very important. 
The other thing one of my colleagues does is considers a trial of home spirometry monitoring before and after starting a new medication. So have the patient do some PFTs at home on a meter that you can download the data so it's not all that much extra work, and then start the new therapy and see if there's actually a change. One wonderful example was a patient was doing this spirometry for a different purpose and all of a sudden had this huge spike up in her lung function. And when they asked what was going on around this time, she looked back in her calendar and she said, that's when I started my saline. And in a subsequent study that I did with a whole bunch of people with CF, she was in it, and we asked the question, what's the one medication you will always make sure you do even if you're running short on time? And she picked hypertonic saline, and she might have been the only person that picked hypertonic saline, but it was because she had this profound visual display of what good it was doing for her body, and so she wanted to keep doing it. And so the more we can set up that expectation that positive things will happen from doing the medication, the more people are going to want to make the effort to try and get it done every day. Dr. Reichert, I want to thank you for today's cases and discussion. Let me change focus now and ask you to look into the future of medication adherence in CF patients. What should clinicians expect to see? It is actually a very exciting time for treatment adherence in CF. There are several research trials underway that should have their data coming out in the next few years to help us see if different types of interventions are helpful, not helpful, worth the effort, et cetera, and whether that adherence, improving adherence, is associated with improved health outcomes. So that's a great opportunity and an exciting thing to be seeing coming down the pike. I think also just the healthcare environment in the U.S. and Europe with our focus on trying to prevent readmissions to hospitals and, and improve quality of care, the focus is now turning towards treatment adherence and what's happening at the patient level at home, that the, the physician can only do so much. We need to now empower the patient to be able to take care of their health optimally to get the best outcomes. So I think there's a lot of increased interest in how adherence affects outcomes and what we can do to help support our, our families. And I think that's translating now into increased research dollars to look at this topic. I think in the past, it's sort of been put behind that once you discover the drug, of course, everybody will take it. I think now people are realizing that even if you make the best drug ever, people will still struggle to take it, even if it's a cure. So we need to think about lifelong support. And the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation is interested in taking this on as a hot topic to move forward and hopefully give their leverage. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, Doctor. I'd like to go back now and review today's discussion in light of our learning objectives. Uh, so to begin, best practices for determining which patients are non-adherent. I think the key points for assessing adherence is to, A, try and get an objective measure whenever possible. That's increasingly possible through e-prescribing and electronic health records. When you form a clinical judgment, to know that that might not be accurate and so to really focus in on the conversation with the patient and identify, have a good conversation with them about where they're struggling and, and where they could use some support. And identifying specific risk factors for non-adherence. There are an infinite number of risk factors for non-adherence, but I think the ones that we covered today are the key ones that are highly important. One is just having life events and barriers and other responsibilities that get in the way, so helping problem solve over that. Mental health problems such as depression are a highly predictive risk factor for non-adherence. Regimen complexity, health beliefs, outcomes expectancies, what they think they're going to get out of the regimen versus the effort they have to put in. And then motivation, is this really working for me? Is this fitting in with my value system? And then general family issues are also risk factors. So 
I gave a tasting of the different risk factors that are out there. There are a whole bunch of others that we could probably talk for another half hour about. And finally, counseling strategies to address non-adherence. We also discussed a lot of counseling strategies we could use. Education is a key one that I think many clinicians are already providing, and I encourage them to keep providing the excellent education that they give. The next step will then be to identify the specific barriers that the family is experiencing and problem-solve with them what needs to be done to overcome them. So it might be as easy as rearranging a routine or modifying the regimen, or it might be as complex as referring out for mental health services or family counseling to enhance the ability for them to manage the, the illness. There's also motivational interviewing and a whole plethora of other things. But ultimately, what what patients really find helpful is just a supportive ear, that you understand that, that this is very hard and complicated and that you know you're asking them to do a lot and and that it's important and, and you wouldn't ask otherwise if it wasn't important. Dr. Kristen Reichert from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, thank you for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Thank you. It was a pleasure to have the opportunity to share this information with you in the audience. This podcast is presented in conjunction with E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a peer-reviewed CME and CNE-accredited literature review emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education to physicians. For physicians, the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this educational activity for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should only claim credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in the activity. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hours. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive eCystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine name implies review of educational format, design, and approach. Please review the complete prescribing information of specific drugs, combination of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indications, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. Thank you for listening. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by an educational grant from Aptalis Pharma, Inc., Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyrighted with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine.